0: running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at lino.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight.
1: Hello from Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Corey House. Hello from Kansas City. Joe Eames. Hello from my basement. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Dirk Hondel. Now, I'm just going to give a little bit of background, and then you can uh, give us a more in-depth introduction, but I met Dirk at VMworld this year. He is the VP of Open Source. Did I get that right? Chief
2: Open Source Officer, yes.
0: Yeah, something like that. Open Source, something, something important at VMware. So... Anyway, we we had a quite a chat at uh, VMworld but my equipment wasn't working. I was going to do an interview. So I was like, "Hey, well, why don't you come on the show? We'll talk about open source. We'll talk about open source at a big company and uh just, you know, have a conversation with, you know, some of my friends who do JavaScript as well." So, uh that's why you're here. Now, you've been involved in open source for a while. So, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of background beyond VMware?
2: Yeah, so I've been doing open source for uh, about 28 28- Plus years, long before it was actually called open source, which is also about 20 years ago. Uh, I was one of the first Linux kernel developers. I was the CTO at SUSE. I ran X36. Uh, last uh, decade and a half, I spent at Intel being their uh, chief Linux and open source technologist and, and you know starting a lot of the stuff that, that Intel has done in open source since. A year and a half ago, I joined VMware, and I'm now the chief open source officer at VMware. Um, helping uh, the company be more inclusive and and more part of the broader development community and overall more successful in, in an industry that more and more shifts towards open source as as one of the pillars of how software is developed.
0: Gotcha. So the other question I just want to give people a little bit more background on is what does a chief open source
2: officer do? I don't think there are a lot of chief open source officers. So... Most companies that have an open source program office uh, that tends to be mm-hmm. at the director level, sometimes mm-hmm. even, even more junior than that. Um, but as you get older and as your hairline uh, uh, goes <laughs> higher and higher on your forehead, uh, uh, <laughs> the career aspirations obviously change as well. And so when I started talking to VMware and we talked about, what does it mean? What, what should I be doing? What is my role? And it became very clear that the role is, is very strategic. It's very critical to a company to have a solid graph of, of, of how to engage with the open source communities in general, but also how to use open source as part of what we do in, in our product development, in our outreach to developers, in our conversation with partners, and, and increasingly so in our conversation with our customers. And so given the strategic nature of the role and the, the cross company nature of the role it ended up being a, a a VP role and for very complicated and silly reasons i ended up with this title of a chief open source officer um and i at first i said this is weird i've always been a cto technologist kind of dude but i've i've grown used to it and i kind of like it it's it's different
1: I'd love to, before we get into like more talking about open source, just kind of ask you some historical questions. I love to- um, talking to people that have been in the industry for a long time. So okay. what do you think, like looking at where we are now, what do you think is really, really different from when you kind of got started? And what do you think is has stayed the same?
2: So when when I got started, computing was unbelievably simple. I, I always tell people when I started working on the Linux kernel, I printed out the complete kernel sources. I don't recommend <laughs> doing this today.
1: <laughs> <Well>. <laughs>
2: uh, I mean, this is—we were talking about maybe a hundred pages of, of oh by the way, not a laser but a line printer because you know we're talking 1991. So, um, your computer when when I had my first computer, a, a VIC 20, had three kilobytes of RAM. That's kilobytes with a K. And and my first hard drive was a five megabyte hard drive. So what has changed is very much the complexity of everything that we do. It used to be that because of the extremely limited resources that you had, your software was incredibly simplistic. A program that linked more than three libraries, you know, you would link the C library, the math library. And, <laughs> and
1: now we look at the like it. was it. It's like... <laughs> and, and I,
2: yeah, your standard I library to... does more than that now. <laughs> I, I, I had I had this conversation the other day with with a recent graduate that that was interviewing with me, and I said, "So you know how big is a Hello World program?" And he said, "Oh, you know, it's it's small. It's it's five eight megabytes. It's not big." And I'm like, "Think about this. The only thing this program does is it writes the words Hello World on the screen, <laughs> and that's five <laughs> megabytes. What's wrong with this? That that should be you know seventy eighty instructions maybe." So. I think what has changed is the complexity has gone up unbelievably. And because of that, in a way, it's gotten easier to get started because you have these incredibly powerful tools and and, and all these support libraries. And it's very, very easy to, to do really, really bad things because you can architect yourself into a place you really never wanted to be. And you can so quickly get confused by the infrastructure that you're using and we're seeing this every day in, in projects that things that should be incredibly simple turn out to be incredibly fragile and complicated and have unbelievably stupid security vulnerabilities. Complexity has gone up and that has made things easier and has made things harder. In in, in so many ways, I think it's harder to get started today and to learn actually how to write that's interesting. Well, one thing
3: that they shouldn't do to save space is try to only store two digits on
2: the year. I know that for sure. <laughs> this, is, this is such an interesting question because the reason why two digits were saved on the, on the year wasn't all about space. It was about lack of vision. So, so there there are actually transcripts of all discussions that that say, ah, no one will run this in 30 years. Who cares? <laughs> and and yep. you're, okay, but we're all laughing about this now. But now you're talking about peop- to people about 32-bit time T. And That's they okay. say 2037, you're kidding, right? Who cares? This is just 20 years away. This is as far ahead of us as 2,000 is behind us. We so are also- almost there.
1: I'm like when I write tests and I say like this application, there's no way this code's going to be around in like 20 years. And I write my dates for, you know, like 20 years in the future or something. Like if, if this application is still around by then, these tests deserve to fail. <laughs> so, <laughs> saying that but, maybe it'll still be around.
2: But the, I have this one, wonderful conversation with, with embedded people. Um, so how old is your car? Or how old is the oldest car on the block that you live on? I'm sure that's mine. That's still mine. <laughs>
1: twenty, twenty years. Yeah, mine's about fifteen years old. <laughs> mine's 22 yeah. years old. Yeah, exactly.
2: And and if I go down, there two blocks from my house. There is a beautiful Datsun, which I think is a 78. It's a gorgeous car. Yeah. So the technology that was built in 78 still works 40 years later. Now today, all new cars have have 20. 30 40 embedded computers in them. How many of them are designed to still work reliably in 40 years?
1: Very interesting. So, what do you think has stayed the same though? Anything?
2: What is, a lot of stayed the same. What has stayed the same is the good engineering matters. That that the more you as a developer think through what you're doing, the more you you have a vision of what is the desired outcome and you stick to it. You don't fall for feature creepism. And and the more you understand how to architect that, how to layer this, how to use the tools that are available to you, but fundamentally how to write software that stays simple, that stays debuggable. I, I One of my pet peeves is people who write software that they themselves six months later don't understand. <laughs> problem hey. in the 90s and that's a problem today so i'd like to jump in here and
3: note that my high, my most popular tweet ever is a tweet uh that says there are 100 million i got this figure from uh bob uh uncle uh bob um mm-hmm. uh, robert martin so that there's 100 million lines of code running the average modern car And my my tweet says this should scare any experienced programmer, which I highly (laughs) agree with. Yes, absolutely terrifying. A hundred million lines of code, and being a programmer, you know what that
2: means, right? The the defect rate. Have you seen the? There's there's a beautiful meme about uh, people riding the Tesla autopilot or driving with the Tesla autopilot, and there is there is the picture, and, and those of us who are on video for this call, there is the picture with the dude who leans back crosses his arms and the car is driving and you say yeah that's the marketing professional and then there is the other one who who just is completely freaked out and the hands are on the steering wheel and he's constantly looking what's going on that's a software developer because you think this is software similar to the software that i write, and this is driving a four and a half thousand pound car at 80 miles an hour down a busy freeway (laughs) that is such an incredibly frightening thought because yes this is millions of lines of code, and with the average defect density, and anybody who has driven in a test and has seen their UI knows how high that defect density is. Really scary. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm I'm curious, you know, we, we're uh, talking a little bit about just software in general. Do you find that people approach open source a little bit differently? Or do we have some of the same issues, right, with, oh, well, you know, this is used in, I mean, like the Linux kernel, for example, you mentioned that you uh, worked on the Linux kernel, you know, that's used on all kinds of machines. A lot of that code runs on my MacBook Pro that I'm talking to you on now. Um, You know, it's used all over the world to run all kinds of stuff, many versions of Linux, you know, with a whole bunch of stuff stripped out, is running in IoT and embedded devices. So since this is everywhere, right, Um, it's it's in everything and it's in it's in more stuff every day. Is that just as frightening?
2: So let's let's start building with the licensing. I really hope that your MacBook Pro itself isn't running in the Linux code, and, and otherwise Apple is in a bit of trouble.
0: Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're running the BSD right. kernel, but a lot of the software, I, I see a lot of similarities, you know. Absolutely,
2: yes. I mean, if you look at not just Linux, the kernel, but you look at, at the open source ecosystem, Macs mm-hmm. are, Chock full of open source yeah. software, absolutely. So fundamentally, open source software is is a different methodology to develop software, but m- most importantly, it's it's a social experiment. It's a social phenomenon. Open source software is about the idea that people who otherwise have nothing in common can collaborate, can trust each other, can can work together in a productive manner without having. An organization that forces them to do so without having a marketing department that sets product specifications and just driven by the desire to write good software and that is what is fundamentally different between open source software and and proprietary software Mm -hmm. but beyond that beyond this motivation of why people engage the things that make people a good developer are exactly the same whether it's open source or not and and is developers who have good taste, who understand architecture, who can write elegant, easy-to-debug algorithms are are very rare. And as a result of that, if you look at the overall sum of open source projects, I think GitHub said the other day they had like 62 million projects. I'm sure by now it's 64. Um, it, there is no way that these are 60-plus million projects of all excellent software a lot of this mm-hmm. is, shall we say, questionable. And a lot of this is software that you should never use in a production environment. But on the flip side, there are a number of, of incredibly good projects and projects that are very well developed by highly skilled teams and where the open source software certainly meets all the criteria that you would normally put on on a software stack that you would run in your product. So it's, it's a very broad range, and the biggest mistake that we always make is that we, we try to compare and say, oh, this is open source software as if it was one thing, when in reality it isn't. It's an incredibly huge ecosystem that, that ranges from nine-year-olds getting access to GitHub and posting and, and little sample programs to, to the most accomplished programmers in the world creating the most frequently used operating system kernel in the world. So it's a a very wide range.
0: Yeah, I I guess the the thing that I'm hitting at, though, is that, um, A, it's developed in the open, which in some ways I think makes it stronger, but it also makes it... it, It's out there so somebody can, you know, scrub through it and maybe find vulnerabilities. The other thing is that people collaborate on open source differently in a lot of cases than they do on closed-source proprietary software, and I think that changes the dynamic and the structure of the open source code a little bit. And so, you know, it, I, I don't know. It does do those things
2: matter? So, so I think they matter very, very much. And that, let's start with the first statement that you made about security. This is this is an age old discussion. Is mm-hmm. is security through obscurity the better method? No one know, knows my source code, so no one can find my bugs. And I would say we have a couple of decades of of remote exploits and proprietary software that say that by itself isn't good enough.
0: No. And people I agree.
2: people saying, uh um, because people see my source, they see my bugs, so it's easier to hack the software. And and again, you look at the, the code drop from from the NSA that, that WikiLeaks did uh, uh what was it, six months ago and and predominantly the targets of that code actually wasn't open source software. it mm-hmm. was proprietary software so i while i don't blindly believe this this linus's uh, statement that uh, significant you know enough eyes make any bug shallow uh, we clearly have catastrophic bugs in open source software that cause us a ton of pain uh, but the opposite isn't true either that that by being open you somehow expose yourself to more risks i i simply don't think that that the past decade of open source being used everywhere has really led to any proof of that statement. So I think the fundamental difference in the in the development model is, especially if you look at the, the somewhat bigger projects, so the projects that are not me, my buddy, and and the kid next door mm-hmm. in the dorm, but the projects that have an, an a broad international multi company uh, membership, that because of the development model, because The review steps are public. The interaction on the the patches is public. There is a lot more peer pressure to pay more attention. And and I think that overall, the the model has proven to create really high-quality software. But this comes with the flip side, because one of the things that is really, really hard to do in, in open source, and that very few projects have gotten a handle on, is how do you get from great code that is really good at, at the level that the developers tested to something that then scales to an enterprise scale? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to pick on a specific project, but let's take OpenStack. And and there has always been this criticism that OpenStack works fantastically if you have three single U systems and you you have 20 VMs between the three. They're on the same class C network and it all works perfect. And then you try to deploy this on a thousand machines across three continents uh, in, in in a complex network environment and it all falls to pieces because that's not the scenario that the developers test. Similarly, you see algorithms that are in in, in very popular open source libraries that do fantastic if you have 10,000 data sets and you throw 10 million data sets at the algorithm and it all comes to a grinding halt. So one of the big challenges is that very often open source software is developed and tested with a mindset for the scale that the individual developer either has right in front of them or can easily envision. And the scale in which enterprise data centers run today is so incredibly scary and so incredibly different that, that it's not something that is tested for. And, and to me, the, the biggest hurdles, if you really look at what's happening in the industry right now in, in the cloud space, the biggest hurdles are network complexity. People have have no understanding. No, that's not fair. It's not that they have no understanding. They don't pay enough attention to latencies, package drop rate, routing problems, network complexity, switching between IPv4, IPv6, having NAT in the middle, all that. So network complexity. And then the complexity of having persistent storage. And this is not just in cloud applications. This is in most every application in the server side. On the, on the desktop, it's easy. Every OS has their persistent settings, the registry, the, the um, uh, Apple's uh, um, plist files, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so the moment you go to something that is, is data center driven, you have to think about persistent storage. Most every project thinks about this as, oh, I'm running on a system and there's a hard drive attached. And you know, if I do HA, there is maybe something like FCD or something. And then you apply this at enterprise scale and you have a thousand machines involved and you again have distributed data centers involved. And there isn't a a simple shared storage available. And, And a lot of projects fall down. So to me, this is really scale in the sense of performance, obviously, scale in the sense of network complexity, scale in the sense of how does persistent storage work? Those are the areas where open source software often falls down.
0: That's interesting. Uh, I've just had clients in the past that, you know, we're, we're comfortable with this open source software and this other open source software, but everything else scares us to death. And <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I, I kind of had to ask the question because I wanted to see, you know, yeah, what where should we we be worried? You know,
2: what are the thought processes behind this? In, in, in some ways, I, I fall back to my earlier position. Open source software and proprietary software are no different. Right. Complexity is hard. Um, scale is hard. But where, where I'm more concerned is whenever software that was developed for a certain set of problems, a certain scale, a certain environment with a certain set of assumptions, is now taken out of that and and moved into a completely different space mm-hmm. and it seems to me that that happens maybe a little more easily in open source because in, in, a, in a software company the people who wrote the code if now their manager says oh by the way now instead of 10 machines we're using a thousand it's likely that the engineers say ah maybe that n squared algorithm over there isn't the best way to do that mm-hmm. but if Developer X over here wrote that code, thinking this is going to scale up to about 10 nodes, and that's what it's optimized for. And developer Y, somewhere completely different, says, I need code that does that. Oh, look, that code does it and uses it with no context and no conversation with the original author. Then suddenly, this code is used way outside of its design area, design specs. And that's really where I get more nervous. It's this, this... disconnected nature of how open source projects often grow. Hey, Dirk, um, could I ask you to back up just a tiny bit and give, um, sure.
3: dig in just a little bit for clarity on people who may not be familiar with um, big O notation, why it matters if we have an N-squared algorithm and you scale up like that and what, that, what it even means to have an N-squared algorithm. Yeah, so
2: an, uh, an N-squared algorithm means that if you have N data sets, then the, the time it takes to process this is roughly proportional to the square of that number. So if I give, if I give you 10 data sets, 10, 10 items, then it takes you 100-something to process that. And if I give you 100 data sets, it suddenly takes 10,000-something. So the, the, an n-squared algorithm means that the bigger your data grows, your, your performance goes exponentially, quadratic, down, and it becomes harder and harder to deal with large data sets. And literally a week ago, I was looking through a library that I was using an open source project that, that I was working And I, I look at this algorithm and I say, great, that's n cubed. So once we have part <laughs> yeah. 50 elements, I don't want to use this anymore. But you have to look at this with these eyes. You have to get it. You have to pay attention to scale. And a lot of developers don't, because a lot of developers think about their specific problem that they are solving right now, and that may be sorting fifty elements instead of mm-hmm. fifty thousand. Hey, now while we're talking about it, I'd love to get your take
3: on the, just again to dig a little bit deeper into this same concept. There's a common, I don't know, statement or piece of advice that's thrown around that premature optimization is the root of all evil. So you're talking about paying attention to scale. How do you personally guide yourself as to when do you worry about stuff like that? Are you prematurely optimizing or are you just getting ready to be scalable?
2: So who was this question for? For you, Dirk. This is for you. Okay, sorry. Um, I, I think that it is very important when you write algorithms that you document your assumptions. And this is what I said earlier, you need to write maintainable code. Mm -hmm. You need to write down, what am I assuming? What are you assuming for data set size? And that means not that you're prematurely optimizing and you're optimizing for the wrong thing. It's just that you document. This assumes that we get no more than a thousand of, of these things. Great. Now, the next time you get to this algorithm and you're saying, oh, my program has changed and now I'll get a million of them maybe i need to rethink this part so to me it's 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 all about documenting what you assume and and documenting the boundary conditions and 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 the scale because optimizing for scale is something that needs to happen at at every step of your of your program so it's something about architecting the different layers architecting the interfaces architecting the apis and If you try from the get-go to build for for 10 million entities, you will make it incredibly hard for yourself to get started. So it makes perfect sense to make simplifying assumptions, test out, figure out where you want to go, how this is all going to fit together, but then know that you made these assumptions and be willing to go back and say, oh, and now that I'm thinking this is all going to be so much bigger or so much faster or so much more complicated, what do I need to change in my architecture? And that's where we're having a, a development process that documents your steps and documents your assumptions mm-hmm. really helps.
0: Cool. One, one thing that I, I kind of wanted to dig into in this call, I'm going to totally change the subject. Sorry, Joe. Um, was how does a company like VMware think about open source? I mean, I've interviewed a whole bunch of people at larger companies like Microsoft, Um, We've had people from uh, Google and Facebook on this show to talk about some of the things that they're working on, you know, Angular, React, you know, because it's a JavaScript podcast. But but how does VMware view uh, open source both in the way that you consume it and the way that you produce it?
2: Uh, Let me start out with my favorite pet peeve. I don't think you consume open source. You consume a commodity. You consume something where you don't really care where it comes from. I plug my my, my uh, what is the word in English for stecker? The, the end of my power outlet into the socket and I get electricity and I don't really care. I consume it. Mm-hmm. I, I open the faucet and water comes out, right? Open source software doesn't work that way. You use it. Ideally, you engage with it. You need to understand, as I said earlier, you need to understand these assumptions that were made. You need to understand what was the purpose it was actually designed for. What is the scale that the community that built it had in mind? So please don't consume open source software, use it, engage with it. Off my soapbox and actually answering (laughs) your question. Um, So I don't think there's any significant software product in the market today that doesn't include a ton of open source components. Open source software is truly ubiquitous and, and everyone uses libraries, large and small tools, components, that are actually developed in open source. And that's a great thing. As a company, you need to, to establish the, the processes and the rules and the, and, and, and the muscle memory of how to do this right. And this is a question of licensing. This is a question of understanding the viability of the components that you use, the, the fitness for your purpose. This is about security, about, again, scale and performance about what are the assumptions. Am I using something that was initially built as a computer science 201 project and then abandoned four years ago and no one works on it? Or is this an actively developed project with a healthy community that pays attention to security, to bugs and whatnot? So is it is this the the right component to use? Is this a viable component to use? So that's the use side. Understand what you're doing. Understand the context of how the software is developed. Understand the community enough that you're comfortable that in three years from now, the version that you're using is still supported, or there's an upgrade path, or or you know this is still the same component to use. And then on the other side, this being a JavaScript podcast, I'll talk about Project Clarity. It's almost exactly a year ago that we open sourced that at VMware, and it's it's a design system for for Angular-based uh, UIs. And so why would a company open source that. It's very simple. It's not our core business to write design software. Our core business is to write enterprise software that needs great UIs. So how much time and effort we spend on, on on creating this design system and how many people are able to contribute and to make it better has a direct impact on the quality of the UIs that we can develop. So for us, it was a very easy decision to say, hey, we, we created something that we think is pretty darn good. Now let's work with a broad community across many different companies, many different fields to help make it better, make it create better UIs, make it easier to use, create an open source project with the community around it. And yes, this costs us a bit more effort to get it right, to, to listen to feedback, to fix bugs. But on the flip side, we get so much more input, so much more help, so many more design professionals look at the software that the the software gets so much better. And as a result, our UIs get so much better. So the logic behind open sourcing something like this is to to get to better software quicker. now you can apply this to many different tools that you and your company use internally. And you can always ask yourself, is this tool the, the, the differentiating thing that makes me a successful company? Or is this the tool that really just helps me create better software and that if the tool got better, I would benefit. And then the, the complete other uh, element that is really important in understanding when you would create open source software is when you're trying to create um, de facto standards. You're trying to create something that, that becomes an on-ramp into your ecosystem, where you want people to use certain API calls, certain libraries, certain functionality, because that then drives your business. So so software libraries, software components that enable what you do, that make it easier for others to use your product. Those are also a great use case for, for open sourcing. Software. So,
4: Dirk, I've heard uh, a number of people throw out interesting creative ideas about how to solve the problem on GitHub of open source projects that, that get abandoned from people getting burned out of finding a way to avoid burnout perhaps through uh, making it easier for companies to contribute monetarily to these projects or for individuals uh, with micropayments. Um, do you have any creative input on, on opportunities that you see that, that GitHub could implement to help resolve this problem? Because I, I say GitHub in particular just because there's so much the center of gravity for open source today.
2: So I may be a naive fool and, and many of my my friends and coworkers would agree with that statement, but um, I don't think money is the real problem. Um, I think burnout is a matter of simply too much work and too much perceived reward, uh, and or simply too much work. And a big part of that is something that many projects are moving towards. Uh, um, maintainer groups. So instead of having one maintainer that maintains a whole project or if the project is bigger, that that maintains a, a big module, have teams that work together. So that being gone for a few days, being on a dive trip and not reading your email is entirely feasible without the project slowing down, and that others can simply pick it up. And, and what happens once you wrap your mind around the setup, that it's not one person who decides, but it's a team of people working together, is that the size of this team will will respond to the size of your project. So the higher the rate of contribution is, so the more work is there for the maintainers to do, naturally this group expands and more people will become involved so that the, the workload for the individual stays maintainable. Um, In my mind, that is a much better approach than trying to find a way how a few hundred or a few thousand dollars are going to motivate this one individual to continue to work 80, 90 or 100 hours a week. Because Fundamentally, working 80, 90, 100 hours a week isn't maintainable. So it really is about scaling your workload and not about giving somebody money. Yeah, good
4: stuff. I think the uh... I think the hard part is finding people that are uh, – I, well, I, I suppose people that are committed enough to stay in um, for for the longer haul because there's certainly a, a ramp-up time with any project. Um, it's one thing for somebody to do a, a one-off pull request in an area, but you need a group of people that really have a cohesive knowledge of the project so that they can understand when a pull request should be rejected and why or when a pull request runs fundamentally against the design of the application. But I, as somebody who's, who's done some open source myself, I completely agree with you that the individual um, quickly feels very frustrated. I, I do agree with you that a team approach makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I'd be interested. Do you, do you have any advice for people that are trying to build that team, but are currently sitting on a an open source project all by themselves?
0: I also want to set well, another trigger point and that's just, you feel like you're completely overworked trying to do it all. And you're not even thinking about building a team. Because I know a lot of open source folks like that too, where it's like, well, if I didn't have to work this full-time job, I could spend more time on this, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, scaling out a team may be a better answer. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. on the invoice that says, pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus FreshBooks is offering a 30 day trial. That's right. 30 day trial. If you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash dev chat and enter dev chat in the, how did you hear about a section? Once again, for a 30 day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash dev chat and enter dev chat in the, how did you hear about a section?
2: So I have this full-time job, uh, and and I maintain a, an open-source project in my in my copious spare time that I apparently have. Uh, so I'm I'm very very familiar with all these thought processes. And interestingly enough, the project that I'm ma- the maintainer of Subsurface uh, divelock program um, just recently went to a group maintainer uh, uh, model for exactly those reasons because I was getting burned out and was getting too hard to me, for me to do it. But I think the question really points to something that is, again, a little more generic than the question of how do I find the right maintainer. The question goes towards the fundamental question of how do I create a a vibrant and interesting open source project? Because once you have an open source project that people are interested in and and you get a lot of people contribute one-liners and one-off patches, as you mentioned, the law of large numbers says, that there will also be some people who are more interested and who would be willing to to contribute more and and become sub-maintainers or co-maintainers. And so this all hinges on your ability to create a community that's inviting, a a Mm -hmm. process that seems transparent and fair to people, a certain velocity in your project that people feel that the investment of time is worth it because... In the the foreseeable future, this will go to a new release and will be useful to the users. And again, I joke everything is about me, so let's use my project as an example. With Subsurface, that's exactly what we have. We have more than 10,000 users. We have a couple hundred people who have contributed one, two, five, ten patches. And we have a core team over this point, about a dozen people who contribute very actively. And, And about half of them have stepped up and said, yes. I will help with maintaining this. And we are distributed across time zones, some in Europe, some in here. We are geographically distributed. We are distributed in, let's say, age and experience and focus areas across the, the project. But all this together creates a team that jointly can continue to maintain this, I think for a long time, without any individual burning out. And, and tooling and automation and all these things help but fundamentally, it's the mindset behind the project that really makes the difference. Do you as a team believe in we want to do this together? We want to do this in a way that invites others to join. We want to do this in a, in a inclusive and, and, and friendly manner that when new people show up, they don't say, I don't want to talk to these people. They're scary. But they feel welcomed and, and they, they feel respected for their contribution, whatever it may be.
0: So so what is it? What is it in the open source projects that make people really want to get involved? Is it the, I mean, you talked about diving for your open source, you know, so is it that common interest or is it, well, gee, a lot of people use this and I want to give back to, you know, just throw a project out there, Babel or Node or something like that. Or what is it? What? How? How do you create that so that A, people have the interest and B, they want to contribute because they feel like they have something to give?
2: I, I always think that fundamentally, almost everyone starts with open source because they're scratching their own itch. So they have something here that, that they need. If I look at the projects that I personally get engaged with, it's either projects that I really use for, for their true value, their end user applications, or it's tools or libraries that I use in my project that don't quite do what I want or that have a bug mm-hmm. and I want to fix that bug. So I think there's always, a, a, a self-motivation, a, a, a nearly selfish need in there. What makes this more complicated is that then the engagement of companies, if you think about bigger projects, when now suddenly someone pays you to work on this, which, which kind of twists the logic a little bit. But to come back to your question, to so what makes the project uh, gain developers, gain maintainers? I think it's this balance of doing something that is useful for a large enough group and being a project that, in the way it is run, in the way it, the inner workings, this, as I said earlier, open source is a social phenomenon. It's about trust and relationships. It's about people interacting with each other. And if your project does a good job of that, if your project is seen as something that, even if you are not a someone who uses this, the, the, the software that is the result of this every day or ever, uh, that contributing becomes fun. So again in subsurface we have one of our most active contributors is not a scuba diver. And we all keep saying why are you working on this and his response is because it's fun. Because I like working with this team of people, it's an it's an interesting level of complexity and and hey this is great. I can I can even though I don't dive and don't need a dive log program. And, and to me, this is, uh, quite honestly, to me, this is one of those signs that we seem to be doing it right. We seem to be able to attract people, not just because they get paid to do it or they, they need to use this, but because it's fun to work with us.
0: So my next question for you is, you know, you've know, you worked at some fairly large companies like Intel and VMware doing open source, and you've been involved in open source for a long time. Uh, a lot of people working companies where they don't have a culture of open source or they may work in a company where the culture is actually hostile to open source, right? We, we don't want to give any kind of competitive advantage to our, uh, our competitors. I mean, even to the point where you brought up clarity, right, where it's a UI engine, it's not really what VMware does. Um, so we open sourced it, but what if, you know, VM you know, your, your arch rivals go and use it, right. Um, you know, they don't want to give any kind of help to them. You know, is is there a way to bring open source to a company that either doesn't get it or or actively fights it?
3: Can I um, can I interject with a story? Please here, Chuck right along the same lines. I worked with a, for a company that did that worked in a very, very, very niche area of the medical space. Very niche. The software at the time that I worked for them was probably eight years old. It was written in the very first version of of Microsoft's ASP technology, not ASP.NET, ASP. It was. I even refused to work on the original, the overall project, that original project, because I didn't want to stagnate my skills. Unless they're going to update, I wouldn't work on it. So I worked on other things. Uh, But it was a condition of my employment that I wouldn't work on that main app. My boss was absolutely convinced that somebody was desperate to steal our code and launch a new <laughs> company to co- to compete with us. And I, I found that idea strange, mostly to be honest, ludicrous. But I thought, you know, this is kind of a, an applicable story that there's a, that same fear probably exists in the minds of a lot of uh, business owners out there. When especially when it comes, then you just say open source says, hey, let's just make the software
0: free. I almost got my hands on that software too, Joe. <laughs> almost yeah but but yeah so how, how do you combat that especially as the companies get larger there's more entrenchment
2: I mean in so many ways that's the story of my life I have I have done this at the companies that I work at and I have talked about this at conferences and this invited speaker at, at, at many many other com- companies who just wanted to get a handle on how should we think about this how should we engage in this and to me this has always come down to revisiting your assumptions about who your own software developers are where the value is in your product and and what the what the the um opportunity costs are of what you do so if you have a a project or a product that is core to what you do and that is legacy and old and complex and and convoluted and you you know requires outdated versions of libraries. It may actually be really hard to open source, that. and it may not be worth. It. But on the flip side, if it's something that's ancillary, that is complementary to what you do, if it's something where you basically wish you could invest more in it but you don't have the resources, if it is something that that becomes a bridge between technologies that could bring more people into a technology space in which you're selling your product. There are so many cases where, while there's always a risk that somebody takes your software and ends up using it in a way where you say, darn, I didn't want to enable that, but the, the opportunities that you're missing by not engaging with others are, are in my mind, almost always so much bigger. And there is this, this underlying fallacy of thinking that the smartest developers are working here and therefore, what could I possibly gain from from getting others involved? And in reality, for for any brilliant developer that you have in your company, there are a thousand more brilliant developers outside of it. And, and so if you structure your thought process around what are my opportunities and what opportunities am I missing out on by, by trying to to Keep this software close, um, and, and it's it's a process. It's something that takes time. It's something that companies need to get comfortable with. And certainly, going into a company and saying, "Hey, I want you to open source your core product," most likely not a very successful approach because that's where all the revenue is tied up. That's where all mm-hmm. the the ownership, all the 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 assumptions, all the Sentiment is tied up. It's really, really hard. But if you have a company that is hesitant or, or maybe borderline hostile with open source, and you come in and you talk about what are the tools that you're using to create your test harness, to schedule your build, to, to go from a meta language to the actual code that you compile, tools to build components like Parity, for example tools for debugging for testing there are so many things that we all build around our core product to create our core product and there are often so many opportunities to do things there in open source which then create familiar familiarity and comfort and 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 the feeling oh maybe this isn't so scary so what can we do next and it's a journey it's it you will never be able to come into a company and just throw a switch and suddenly it's all open source. I mean, that's, that's ludicrous. And that's really not what I'm after. I'm very much a pragmatist when it comes to open source. For me, open source is a fascinating way to create great software and to create it in a, in a collaborative manner, in a very social manner. It is a very social thing. And, and I think it's very valuable in the right places. And there are places where it isn't and where it isn't superior to what the industry has been doing for the last few decades. So take a pragmatic approach, look at the opportunities, and, and start small, start easy, and and expand from there.
0: So one other thing that I'm wondering about, and, and this comes out of an interview that I did at Microsoft Connect. We were talking about some tools that Microsoft has that they haven't open sourced. You know, they've open sourced quite a few of them, but but this particular tool they hadn't. And I'm, I'm not going to pick on the particular uh, thing, but they, they talked a little bit about um, the software or the repository not really being in the right kind of shape for them to want to open source it, if that makes sense.
2: It makes a lot of sense. It's a very familiar comment.
0: So I'm curious uh, from that standpoint in a company like VMware or some of these other larger companies, you know, where, you know, you've kind of, you've got something that really works, you know, it works. Uh, what kinds of things do you have to do to a repository that already exists to make it so that you'd want to open source it?
2: Well, uh, I apologize. I won't throw my coworkers under the bus, even though that might be fun. Um, so I will not give you specific examples, but oh, we, we've abstract,
0: all done these things. We've all done them. So yeah.
2: In the abstract, one of the things that I, I find there are a couple of areas that I usually find when you look at repositories that were designed and implemented as proprietary software. One is is the consistency of, of commit messages. Um, you will see a repository that has 50 commits that say update, update, update. <laughs> then comes an important one, bug fix, update, update. <laughs> mm, no, maybe not perfect or you will have commits where a single commit brings in 64 different changes mm-hmm. and touches 240 files. And it's a commit message just sync. Great, that helps me. So it's it's discipline, it's software engineering hygiene, it's very basic software engineering. The other area that very often is scary is comments. Uh, I think most of us are old enough to remember uh, Star office and Star division, purchased by Sun, and then the decision to open source StarOffice. One of the fascinating things was that Star Division was a German company, and the people who were open sourcing the software were Americans. And they didn't immediately realize that the sources that they were open sourcing contained a ton of German comments that, had they known what the comments actually say, they wouldn't have wanted associated with their brand. As there was a lot of swearing, a lot of badmouthing of customers, a lot of questionable comments. This is something you need to be aware of. So is, is your code something that you're proud for people to look at? And then there are things that, and, and, and I find this highly ironic when you talk to, to software engineering teams, that sometimes your code contains shortcuts. Your code contains assumptions that you aren't willing to admit to. If code does things that you would rather keep secret. And even if you come in as an open source advocate and you talk to them about, hey, let's open source this, they will come up with a thousand different arguments why you can't open source that instead of saying, you know what, actually mm, there are things in there we really would want to re-architect in order to maintain that that perception that we are a competent software development organization. And obviously none of this has happened at VMware because we are a very competent software development organization just just for the record
0: I'll go out on a limb I've done all those things
2: oh me too (laughs) but I have written none of VMware's proprietary code so Mm -hmm. we're not talking about me here
0: yeah absolutely one other thing that um, I see a lot in open source that these companies seem ill-prepared for or you know that they get somebody in that really gets it and so they take a little bit longer to make sure they get it right is managing the community around the software you know, and we've seen missteps, I think we've seen missteps with you know react with their licensing um you know the transition from Angular One to Angular Two was not exactly well presented um you know there there are other things out there where you know they're 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 going in the right direction, but then you know they they mess something up in the way that they interact with their community. Um how important is that to for a company to consider and and what kinds of things do companies need to make sure they have in line for that before they go open source
2: So I have I have somewhat mixed feelings around this role of a community manager and I have very good friends who do that for a living and I I know that I'll I'll become unpopular by saying this but I think A community manager who isn't part of the developers, who isn't one of the people really involved, is is more often a problem than a solution. Because, yes, community is important. Community management is important. But doing so as a separate function uh, risks that you are actually disconnected from, from the true needs of the community. And it becomes this abstract thing, which I think in most communities isn't a good thing. I mean, there are exceptions. There are dedicated community managers who are incredibly talented and are doing an amazing job. But um, way too often, I see community managers who don't understand the needs of the developers in the project, and who look at all this with a with a marketing uh, point of view or with a brand point of view or wherever they come from. What is their professional background? They're not soft. Mm-hmm. Having said that, one of the biggest things to get it right when dealing with the community is this incredibly basic ability to say oops i got this wrong you will make mistakes your company will make mistakes there will things will be pushed into the repository that shouldn't have been pushed you will maybe even do force pushes and try to remove stuff you will have have statements made by by your team that that aren't okay you need to be willing to own up to it and to say, hey, we did this wrong. Let's figure out how to do it better. And obviously, if you look at the political landscape today or the social landscape today in the U.S., a lot of people are learning that that maybe saying, I'm sorry, is a pretty good skill. Um, and it's especially true in, in uh, something as highly social as an open source project, Because the only way you're going to keep people around and keep people interested in working with you is if they feel comfortable, if they feel that you treat them fairly, and and you treat yourself the same way you treat everyone else. Um, I'm I'm not so worried about outbursts. I mean, there's there's everyone loves to pick on Linus. Linus is a someone who sometimes <laughs> gets rather outspoken, and it was just this week where he got on another rant about about um, uh, a proposed security. Uh, um, approach in the kernel and people get very upset about his tone and to me yeah you know be nice be 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 productive be be polite and that's all good and, and wonderful but at the end of it if the vast majority in the in the communication in your project is civil and technical and and contained and if the people who are on the on the receiving end of the occasional wild rant that happens are people who have been around and who know what they should have done and they didn't do it and they didn't do it, even though you told them three times, then going on a rant can actually be the human and the normal thing to do. And I'm not defending Linus for his tone or anybody else for their phone. And certainly abusive messages are never accepted. But I also think that a, a, a hyper-policed environment where you can never say, crap, that's stupid – because sometimes someone sends you a patch that is crap and that is really stupid. And so being feeling that you aren't allowed to say that, I think is hurtful. And, and being able to, to slowly escalate the intensity with which you say something is wrong may be healthy for a project. But the biggest problem in all this is degree and, and, and measured, you know, measured increases of, of, of your response. And, and that's really, really hard to, to define what is the correct way to do it. I just, I, I, I worry about people who say, oh, you can always just be super polite. And every comment on a patch needs to start with, thank you for this great contribution. Because if, <laughs> if, that is, if that is your rule book, then those phrases become meaningless. And I think a big part of being socially acceptable and successful in a project is also to be authentic. And and to to believe in what you say and to stand behind what you say. And yeah, sometimes I say things on my project that afterwards I say, mm, I should have phrased that differently. And then I go back and say, Oops, sorry. Uh I what I really wanted to say was this thing over there. Um and I think that's fair and that's okay.
0: I have more. Anyone else want to ask a question?
2: I feel like asking questions
3: is not the best way to get you to say interesting things though. <laughs>
1: You
2: mean, you mean the more I talk, the more I get myself into trouble. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is so true. Like that is, the, yeah. so true. the more compelling and
3: fascinating the things that you say are. To be honest. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask this last question. So Make
2: twenty more minutes.
0: We we do, but we need to save some time for picks too. So. The the question that I have is, if I remember right, at VMWorld, you all announced that you adopted was it the Kubernetes API, or they adopted VMware API? You're you're making a face like you have no idea what I'm talking about. I seem to remember it. I announced. know
2: exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so you're um, talking about uh the Pivotal Container Services PKS, and this is a project that we co-announced with Pivotal and Google. Yeah. Uh, we are building a product together with Pivotal that allows you to to use the Kubernetes APIs um, in an environment that runs on top of a, a VCP.
0: Right. Um, I had a similar conversation again talking about Cosmos DB with Microsoft, and they adopt they've adopted the MongoDB API for Cosmos DB, the Cassandra API, the Gremlin API. And so as you adopt these open source APIs, these open source systems, right, where it's not you're not adopting the technology per se, but you're adopting some of the design patterns around it or the API patterns around it, um, how how does that come about? How, how do you go about saying, oh, well, we like what's going on over here. We know people are using this and we want to make it an option here because it's not directly bringing in open source software. It's just the ideas, right?
2: I can I can talk to what other companies are doing for us. It is really bringing in the software, so we are truly shipping Kubernetes on top of um, Bosch with Kubo as a as a glue layer between those two, and we are able to run Kubernetes upstream Kubernetes on our VSphere infrastructure. Oh, nice! And this kind of folds back to what I said earlier, where uh, open source is great to create things that collaborate, to create APIs, to create quasi standards, but sometimes it's harder to, to get all these production elements right. And so Kubernetes today assumes that you have a way to create persistent storage across your cluster, that you have a, a completely virtualized network environment. And Kubernetes makes a lot of assumptions about the infrastructure that it runs on. And if you take this to enterprise scale, to, to uh, complex distributed environments, um it's actually pretty hard to do that. And so we we look at this as we think the APIs are truly interesting and we know from a lot of customers mm-hmm. that they want to see these APIs in, in their data center. But we feel that it's pretty hard today to do so um at scale, at enterprise quality. So we want to to bring our enterprise experience and, and the strength of our infrastructure and and the popularity and, and the capability of these APIs and, and bring it together. But to us, this doesn't mean that we re-implement these APIs in our own software, but that we use the open source project. And we have very similar, we have the vSphere integrated OpenStack as a product where you run a, a somewhat opinionated distribution of OpenStack on top of vSphere and are able to create uh, um, large, scalable, OpenStack clusters in an environment where the hardware is managed by vSphere and and all of our manageability tools, all of our planning tools, our accounting tools, all the things that we have developed for our customers over the last decade are available to you. But to your developers, what you see is an OpenStack API and they don't care what sits behind Mm -hmm. it. And so we have to have this, this idea a few times where we take Something that in the industry, our partners, the developers, and our and our customer sides tell us, hey, we would love to use that, but it doesn't work at the scale that we would like it to use, or it doesn't integrate with the infrastructure that we have, and so we create these integrations as products. I I am more skeptical of what I thought you said, which is you you take an API that has been developed in an open source project and you just take the API and you implement it in your proprietary product because there you will immediately go into a forked world and into incompatibility hell. So that seems less interesting to me.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and I don't know how that's all been set up over at Microsoft, but it's, it's interesting nice. to think, oh, you know, we, we took this open source software and we made it work with our proprietary setup so you can use all of our tools and all of their tools, and it all works. And that's really cool too. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. For you, the listeners of JavaScript Jabber, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code Bridge ten for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month, I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles... Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Uh, Corey, do you want to start us off with picks?
4: Yeah, I'll start off with a pick. I had a YouTube video I watched a couple days ago that I uh, really enjoyed from uh, uh, Fun Fun Function Show, uh, which is a great show every Monday morning on JavaScript, and it was a, a show on automated testing, and I just found out that uh, the author of the show has also decided to go full-time on it, so uh, hopefully be uh, seeing lots of good content coming in the future from them too, so... I'll share a link, but that's my pick.
0: Awesome. Uh, Joe, what are
4: your picks? All right, so I got
3: two picks for you. I recently played a board game for the first time that I thought was just fantastic. It's called Dice Forge, F-O-R-G-E. It's a typical type board game where you're playing against the other players, trying to score the most points, but it's got a very unique mechanic in that you have a a pair of dice, and throughout the course of the game, you can buy... Upgraded faces for your dice, and you pop the face off your dice, and you, one of your die, and you pop a new face on as you play the game and make your dice more powerful. It was, it was pretty cool. and Very, I had a, I had a really good time playing it, so I highly recommend that one. Dice Forge. The other thing I want to pick, my other pick is going to be just the concept of empathy. Recently, I had a chance to do some empathizing with uh, somebody, and um, who was in a really tough spot. And it just reminded me how important it is that uh, we keep in mind what it is to actually have proper empathy for other people and the opportunity to actually sit in a difficult place with somebody else, not turn it around in any way, but just simply be there for somebody. So if you're not familiar with the concept of what empathy is and how it differs from uh, you know, if you've never really studied the concept, I encourage you to take a moment to do some Googling and really understand empathy and learn learn it as a skill and practice it. Uh, it makes a huge difference. Those are my picks.
0: Awesome. Amy, what are your picks?
1: Mm, yep, I got two. Um, so the first one is just a really, really uh, looks like a small but pretty helpful Chrome extension. It's called Z context. So if you're trying to like debug uh Z-index issues, this Chrome extension is pretty helpful for seeing like what stacking context you're in and stuff. Uh, So that's my first pick. And then the second one, um, I talked to a lot of developers, especially like friends who graduated from boot camps, And it seems like so many of us have a hard time sleeping and we didn't always have this. Uh, Like I know for me, um, sometimes it just takes me so long to fall asleep and I'm not even like stressed out or anything. It's just, I can't explain why this happened when I started programming, but Um, I'm not the only one and it happens to so many people. So I'm always searching for um, like different things to help me fall asleep. And so I found something the other day just uh, looking around, like actually on Amazon and it's called, hopefully I'm pronouncing this properly. It's called Dodow, D-O-D-O-W. And it kind of takes, it, it looks like it's kind of like, um, you know, borrowing from meditation, but it's like this little uh, light that projects onto your ceiling and you're supposed to watch the light and it like pulsates and stuff. Um, and it's supposed to like help lower your heart rate so you can fall asleep faster. So I ordered one, it was like 60 bucks. Um, it got great reviews. I haven't actually tried it out yet, but it got really, really, really good reviews. So hopefully, hopefully it helps. (laughs) Anything that helps is, is very valuable because sleep is important. So that's it for me.
0: Awesome. Now, my pick is going to be a little bit different than what I normally do. So, I've been reaching out to people to get them on uh, my JavaScript story. And when I reached out to some of our past guests, I had one of them reach back out and he's been going through some stuff and he's done quite a bit for our community, and so I'm just going to do something a little bit different um in that instead of picking stuff that I was like, "Oh, this week I played with this thing." Um his primary source of income right now is his book royalties. And I'm not telling you just to go buy a book to support him, but uh, go buy a book to support him. Um, he's got some great ones. It's Nicholas Zakis is is who's going through this stuff. We've had him on, a, we had him on oh, yeah. about, uh, ES6 and module loading and a bunch of stuff. And he's got some terrific books. So go buy the books because they're terrific. And just keep in mind that you're helping somebody out that's contributed to the community uh, for a long time and is going through some pretty hefty health crap right now. Um, So he has Understanding ECMAScript 6, um, Principles of Object-Oriented JavaScript, JavaScript for Web Developers, High Performance JavaScript, Maintainable JavaScript, um, on and on and on. He's got a whole bunch of books out there. Uh, So I'm going to put a link to his um, author profile on Amazon and then just go browse through the books and see if there are any of them that you think you might want. Um, I'm sure he'd appreciate, uh, you know, the support and the ability to kind of give back to you while you give back to him. So uh, anyway, that's that's my pick. Um, Der- can,
1: can, I, oh, yeah, go ahead. can I actually echo that really quick? So I didn't know that you were going to pick that. And um, even before I went to my boot camp, when I was just learning how to program on my own by myself. Um I actually read um one of his books and uh, for somebody who was literally just getting started and you know like all I had was stack overflow and whatever books I ordered off Amazon uh his book was I felt like it was very in depth but it was also like really approachable to somebody who was like had you know a couple months of javascript experience teaching themselves so I'm going to echo everything you just said and I'll be quiet now
3: <laughs> and I, I I wanted to to help so I just Purchased his professional Ajax second edition book.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was a buck forty-four.
2: Yep.
0: All right, Dirk, do you have some picks for us?
2: Well, so my picks actually go go kind of in the same direction that we heard earlier, which is is ironic. So, where I wanted to start with was practice critical thinking, and and that sounds terribly abstract and useless but we we currently live in a world where a lot of people accept things just because people they like say them or because they read them on the internet and it must be true <laughs> and and I think we see a a severe lack of people actually questioning the sources they get information from and and this this fundamental skill that that I thought everyone should have learned in school to to hear a statement and then spend a few minutes to do your own research and figure out is this actually true is this is out of context Is this irrelevant is this yeah critical thinking i think is is a skill that is massively underdeveloped and, and if i can get everyone to spend a few minutes every day to to ask more questions that would be wonderful and my second pick is also a board game how funny is that um and it's munchkin i'm not sure if you've played it munchkin is is one of those Truly weird games you play it the first time. The rules are so insanely, overwhelmingly complex that you you want to give up. And once you get into it, it is one of the most hilarious games either with family or with friends. Because so much of this game is designed around the concept of cheating and making up rules as you go, and and ruining things for the other people in the party. And it feels so like real life, but in a in a very lighthearted and beautifully illustrated and and very humorous manner that I think this is a a wonderful thing to try. It has dozens of different extensions, but even the basic game is so hilariously funny and entertaining. That would be my pick, Munchkin.
0: Awesome. And then the last thing that uh, I usually ask our guests is, you know, where do they find you on GitHub, Twitter, blog, anything like that?
2: almost everywhere you find me at dirkhh on twitter somebody else took this so it's underscore dirkhh but on google plus it's dirkhh on, on on github it's dirkhh wherever you go even at VMware, it's dirkhh to get to me
0: awesome well thanks for coming and talking to us um it's it's thanks really for me. To get this perspective so all right we'll wrap this it's been show a up and we will uh, catch everyone next week thank you thank you peace